This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, GE stock is down 7% today, due in part to a downgrade by a J.P. Morgan analyst. To help us bring us up to speed on what is going on with GE, we welcome back Brooke Sutherland. She is Deals and Industrials columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Brooke, thanks so much for being with us. It seems like this analyst is just flip-flopping. I thought I remembered him upgrading the stock in December. So what's changed? Right. Well, so I think the reason why he upgraded it in December, because if you remember, GE really sort of hit the skids in December. It went all the way back to its post-financial crisis low. And what he said at the time when he upgraded it is he felt like the risk-reward equation was more balanced at that point in time. And and since then, you've really sort of seen GE shares take off. Um, And I think, you know, what, what Steve Tusa is arguing in his downgrade is that those shares have risen on unrealistic expectations of a cash flow recovery and asset sales that do, do chip away at GE's leverage, but don't go nearly far enough to protect the company, especially in the case of a recession. So, Brooke, one of the reasons we love talking to you is, A, you follow this very closely, and B, because you're an opinion columnist, you get to have a take. <laughs> uh, so what's your take on GE at this point? Who's got it right, the bulls or the bears? I tend to think that... Um, there's a lot of unfounded optimism. And I think that you've just seen time, you've just seen the cycle happen time and time again where the stock reds up and everyone thinks, oh, you know what, this is a bottom. And then something comes out, something happens to sort of put a dent in that view. And we just keep going through this. And I, you know, I, I think back to how GE got in this position. And I think a big part of it is that it was considered just this corporate icon and the idea that you would question its numbers, you know, they would fight back very hard against that. And I think it got away with a lot because it was GE. Mm -hmm. And so for it to really come out of this, I think you have to hold a magnifying glass up to everything the company does. You have to make sure that they earn, you know, investors trust and that they you know, are actually exhibiting sort of this cash flow recovery that people are pricing into the numbers. And, you know, a lot of what's been driving the stock is more sentiment and faith in Larry Culp than anything that's actually happening with the businesses. And when you sort of actually do the valuation math, you know, if you look at sort of what I think is a more reasonable free cash flow outlook for for 2020, 2021, the multiples just don't really make any sense. Hmm. So if you use that as your starting point, then, you know, I think you have to sort of question what, what's the driver for the enthusiasm here. You raised, uh, you raised a good point on the free cash flow. The company said that they're going to burn as much as, I think, $2 billion in, in free cash flow this year. And with that balance sheet, that's really a challenge, right? That's probably one of the fundamental concerns, right? Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, so they've said, you know, it could be as much as $2 billion this year. And then they've sort of laid out directional guidance for 2020. They expect power to continue to burn cash. 
in 2020. Also renewables, healthcare will be an improvement, but they're also losing about a, you know one billion of cash flow from that business because of the sale of the biopharmaceutical assets. And so when you sort of add all of that up, this idea of a meaningful recovery in 2020 cash flow, what does meaningful really mean? I mean, if you're coming off of a negative two billion dollar number for 2018 and you post a hundred million or whatever it is in, in 2020, that's meaningful on some grounds, but is it really you know sort of the robust number that's going to just if I were the share prices, I'm more skeptical of that. So 10 firms have buy ratings on GE, nine have holds, and three have the equivalent of sell ratings. So it does feel like, and, and I, I would pose this to both of you, because Paul, you did this for a living in terms of uh, covering uh, covering stocks from, from the sell side perspective. I mean, how does that mix shake out in, in, in your estimation? Because that's still a lot of buys. Right. Well, I would point out that most of those buy ratings have been there since like pre-2016. Wow. Um, so they haven't really changed. Yeah. So like the price targets have changed, right. but not the Average buy Average price rating. target is $11. Right. And so that's come down pretty substantially, but you've seen people sort of stick with these buy ratings with the argument being, well, yeah, our numbers were wrong, but now, you know, that it's fallen so much, we right. think it'll recover. So like, I, you know, and I think that's, Steve makes that point very uh, forcefully in his note and in some of his past research that he feels like, you know, they're sort of giving the company too long of a leash here and, and sticking yeah. with these buy ratings when they don't necessarily make a lot of sense. Well, to the extent that they want to fix the balance sheet, you know, fix in air quotes, are there more assets left to sell this company or have they pretty much sold off everything that's worth selling? No, Great there question. are. So they've sold the biopharmaceutical assets out of healthcare, but they still have, you know, sort of the traditional healthcare assets, so the MRI machines, stuff like that. And they, you know, CEO Larry Culp was actually on Bloomberg TV not very long ago and said that is not core to GE, that they eventually will proceed with trying to divest that. They were going to IPO it, sold the biopharma assets instead. So I do see that happening over the next couple of years. But then the question, of course, is, what sort of economy might they be spinning those assets off into? Are they going to get the valuation that they want from that? Are they going to raise as much cash as they need to? Because that's one of the better cash flow generating businesses of GE. So once you spin it off, that cash flow is gone. And so then the overall picture starts to look not as great, especially if you don't raise as much cash off that asset as you were hoping for. General Electric, its shares down 7.2% at the moment. If that holds, be the most uh, since early March. So it's it's pretty big, uh, big, big hit. Brooks Sutherland, deals and industrials columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Always good to catch up with you. Uh, and Paul Sweeney, I you know I do I am interested in this idea. Again, you having done this for a living, I mean. It's- kind of a cool feeling for an analyst to be like, yeah, everybody's listening to me. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, so for this analyst, he, to really whip this stock around, uh, you know, really shows, the, A, the impact that certain sell-side analysts still have, and, and it also shows how tenuous this story is, that, you know, an analyst can change ratings and, and really move the stock as much. It just kind of shows that, you know, there's definitely some a lot of concern around this name. People are still very skittish when it comes to GE, and uh, Larry Culp still has a lot of work to do. All right, so the private equity landscape, always a great indicator of what's going on in the broader economy, whether we're talking about deals, whether we're talking about jobs, whether we're talking about consumers. So Karen Davies is back with us, Senior Vice President, Private Equity Managing Director for Huntington National Bank, based in Ohio, but here with us in New York. Great to have you back, Karen. Uh, Thanks. Thanks for having me back. So... 
take us inside the private equity landscape right now because it feels very popular. A lot of investors uh, going in there. Are they getting the deals they want to see at this point? So it, it, sometimes you come back and you, you feel like you're saying the same thing yeah. again. We've got a trillion dollars worth of dry powder in the private equity world right now. A lot of urgency to put that to work. Yeah. Um, LPs obviously looking for return. And the, the robust activity that's out there has been um, a little slow in the first quarter. I think it was sort of a 15% off the mark, if you will, um, almost 30% off the mark in deal volume, just even global M&A. PE obviously plays in M&A. Uh, so, you know, I think it's the PE folks have a bit of an urgency to deploy soon, right? You want to deploy before mm-hmm. a cycle and get it put to work. Yeah, it's interesting. You, I, you think back to the 2006, 2007, before the financial crisis, one could argue that the private equity sector really did a lot of bad deals, uh, over-leveled lever deals. I'm thinking Clear Channel. I'm thinking Univision, just in my space. Yeah. We're not necessarily seeing that here, are we? No, no. I, I think you're seeing and – and I think you know I can speak from um, a banker's perspective, right, in terms of how we finance these transactions. I think you're seeing a lot of diligence on the front end – maybe different than it was before. Your client selection is really critical. Your discipline and credit underwriting is really critical. You know, picking the best assets that are out there is is critical. I think a lot of people have learned from sort of the leverage loan pain of the prior cycle. It doesn't mean that there won't be bad investments. You know, not everyone is a winner. But I think we've been, as a bank, and I think private equity firms as investors have been underwriting to these potential swings mm-hmm. um, from day one. And what about valuations? Because we've continued to to hear that, uh, you know, obviously the even with the sort of swoon of the end of last year, things have have come back, and obviously the public markets have something to do yep. with uh, with valuations out sure. there. What are you seeing, especially as you get into some deals out there? So I, I think if you look at some of the data, which uh, it would tell you that maybe we've peaked, maybe there's been a little bit of a, a back off twelve times. That's still a pretty high yeah. peak, even if it drops to an eleven times number. Um, and I think it's also very in, uh, sector specific. So healthcare, you know, it's not a cyclical industry. It's where a good portion of the M&A is activating, a- activity is taking place. So you're seeing, you know, multiples 10, 12, 15 times in healthcare. I think technology is still very active. So it can be a little sector specific when you see elevated multiples and certainly healthcare, business services, technology, obviously all with high valuations today. So, Karen, one of the things we always say about M&A is it just reflects CEOs and boards' confidence in the future. And you mentioned that deal in terms of dollar amounts uh, through the first quarter is off about 15%. Mm -hmm. So are you hearing from some of your CEO clients that maybe – gee, maybe we, we don't feel that great about the back half of this year or going into next year, and I might not want to put down a big check? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, no. Actually, what I think we saw was um, everybody thought that the last quarter would sort of show replenishment. So sort of January, you know, December, January would start to show massive deal replenishment, and it didn't. But you also had a, an interesting nuance of the third quarter and the fourth quarter with these mega deals that made it through the pipe. So it just took a while to replenish. In any of the data that you read or survey data, I think most middle market companies still feel very bullish about M&A activity. They think it's going to be con- the back end of the year, if you will, sort of Q3, Q4 is going to continue to be robust. 
neutral to last year, maybe up a little bit. So no, I think in the underpinnings of the economy are such that um, still relatively stable. And so no downturn through 2019. And when you talk about that dry powder, the sort of committed but unspent capital from the limited partners, the pension funds, the endowments, the sovereign wealth funds, any worry that you see sort of backing up on them that they're going to slow down or are they continuing to pile into private They're equity? continuing to pile in. And then you also have the family offices joining them, too. So right. um, we'll see. That, that number is still very, very high and has to go somewhere. Yeah, it is amazing when, when you just yep. think about that, that trillion dollars. And yes, they have a lot of time to, to put it to work. But, you know, Paul, you mentioned that it, you're not seeing these sort of mega deals where you can write these massive equity checks, and so it means ultimately more deals have to get done. Yeah, so Karen, are you seeing, uh, like following what Jason was getting to, are you seeing small and mid-sized deals still getting done in a healthy clip? Yeah, very much so. You're seeing a lot of corporate carve-outs, so, so PEs showing up to pick up some of the public's pieces, if you yeah. will, and then you're seeing an immense amount of add-on activity. So use one platform to lever up and, and pick up sort of that lower end of the middle yeah. market transactions. That platform piece, I think, is really important. We're seeing more and more private equity guys uh, do that across a lot of industries. All right, Karen Davies, so great to catch up with you. Thanks again for stopping by. Senior Vice President and Private Equity Managing Director for Huntington National Bank, based out in Ohio, but here with us in New York City. Whistle while you wake. All right, so we all know it. Many of us use it. We here at Bloomberg use it. Uh, Plantronics products. It's easy for me to say. Uh, Joe Burton, CEO of Plantronics, is here with us. He's based out in Santa Cruz, California. We're talking about the bi-coastal life here uh, before he came on air. But he's here with us in New York City. Joe, great to see you. Fantastic to be here. All right, so you have been working on a partnership that we really want to talk about. Microsoft, Amazon, Google, we all are trying to figure out how to connect with each other. Have you solved this problem? Boy, boy, I feel like we are well down the path. Good. So at uh, at Poly, which is the former Plantronics plus uh, Polycom brought together, rebranded a few weeks ago, as people are moving to collaboration in the cloud, as you say, from Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and many others, we provide every piece of technology you need to access them, from the headset to the desk phone to the conference phone to the video. We've got an interoperable solution that works with every one of them. So, Joe, you mentioned uh, the, the merger with Polycom. That's a $2 billion transaction, roughly a big deal for you guys. I know it, it closed last year. What is that? What does the merged company bring to the marketplace that maybe you didn't have as a standalone? Yeah, you bet. So Plantronics was the world leader in business headsets. So we've been in the headset business since the early 60s. Interesting fun fact, uh, Neil Armstrong's headset was a Plantronics. So those famous words from the moon were Plantronics. Headsets are our thing, but as we watch this transition, not only to communications from the cloud, but to the open office space where people are coming out of their offices in cubes and being at these tables and such, we really felt the need to offer every single piece of technology that people touch to get through their uh, communications day. So in addition to headsets, we picked up phones, audio conferencing, and video conferencing. All right, so when... People saw that you were going to be joining us. Our video game analyst sent me a message. Uh, Matt Canterman, he's one of our favorites, sent me a note talking about how important this has become, how important this technology has become for gamers. Help me understand that. Oh, 
Uh, really fascinating. So in addition to all the business uh, uh, headsets and other communications tech that we have, we also have a great consumer business, including in gaming. So the ability when you're playing any of these games, the Fortnite phenomena that's yes. going on right now, boy, hearing that the noise is on your left or your right is pretty good, but being able to hear that it's on your right and maybe 15 degrees behind you, frankly, as uh, one of my kids say, when he's got his uh, Plantronic rig on he kills more and dies less oh. <laughs> so who are you, who, who you are gonna the, put that on a exactly uh, <laughs> that, that's a tagline yeah exactly yeah. I, I tried to get the marketing team to yeah, go for it and they like, won't do it no, but, no maybe not so okay so in, in your business of this the telephone equipment uh periphery business uh who, who do you compete against day to day well, you know, one of the great pieces about this, and I really I will answer the question, but for a comprehensive line that works across everything from the headset to the boardroom and everything in between, we are the broadest and most complete portfolio in the industry by far. Now, we, we certainly compete against some other headset makers, some other phone makers, and so forth. Nobody else brings the whole portfolio for the open ecosystem the way we do. All right, so can I ask you more of sort of a cultural question? Because I, f- I feel like we're all trying to figure out how to work better, um, how to work around other people, how to work in an open office space. We have a very open office space uh, here at Bloomberg. Like, how do we sort of manage the idea of being able to communicate, but also managing people's privacy? I mean, where does technology fit into that equation? Well, you know, it's a fantastic question that we are right in the middle of. Interesting story at Plantronics, before we rebranded Poly, about eight to 10 years ago, really early, we bulldozed the inside of our office and turned it into these radical open office spaces. Looks like the world's biggest Starbucks in there in some respects. We did that so we could have the audio uh, problems before anybody else did. And we've really learned how to manage the acoustics differently. So not only do we build things into headsets, phones, and video conferencing, we have an open-air product that help, that helps to actually manage noise in the building. We have uh, uh, interesting advice on how to set up the acoustics in an office. As you say, it's a great place to collaborate. It's a bad place to communicate, but we really think we can help you do both. So, Joe, I've not, it's my contention that a big piece of this GDP in this country is generated in Starbucks and coffee, you know, diners around the country. It just seems like it's every time you go into a Starbucks or something, everybody's working and doing something. They're, you know, how has that impacted your business, the gig economy, if, if, you, if you will? Well, it's really great for us, but you're right. One of the things that's a, a core tenet for Poly is that work's not a place that you go, work's a thing that you do. So we are laser focused on not only making these open workplaces work, but also on the mobile worker. How do we make it so when you're at Starbucks, when you're at home, when you're on the go, you're a first class participant in whatever the uh, in whatever your distributed work group's doing. Mm-hmm. And so where does it where does the company sort of where does the, the culture of uh, this technology go from here? In your, in your estimation. Like, what's it, look around the corner for us. Uh, well, you know, I think you were on it a minute ago when you talked about the gig economy. I think work workspaces are becoming more 
touchdown areas mm-hmm. in the open office, distributed workers anywhere in the world, creating technology that can actually bring people together. We talk about making remote collaboration as rich and natural as face-to-face, not just between conference rooms, but between conference rooms, coffee shops, people on the go. It's a challenging situation, but we're really trying to follow where the culture of the world is going and create the technologies that really support that. So what's the biggest challenge for you? I know you put these companies together last year. You really doubled down on, on this business. What keeps you up at night? You, you know, what, what keeps me up at night really has very little to do with the business. Uh, merger went together great. Market opportunity in front of us is fantastic. Investors like it. Customers like it. Partners like it. Really, it's what we talked about a minute ago. As we look forward to how people want to work in the future, how do we stay one to two years ahead so by the time they want it, we already have it? More deals to be done? Is there more consolidation coming in this space in your estimation? Um, You know, hard to say. I mean, for us, we're very, very satisfied with where we are right now as a company. We think we have a comprehensive portfolio. Certainly, as we look out there at many, many different cloud providers chasing this $40 billion unified communications market, uh, it's easy to imagine some of them choosing to come together. Interesting. All right. Joe Burton, he is the CEO of Plantronics based out in Santa Cruz, California, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. And, you know, Paul Sweeney, I do think about how much, you know, we use it. I've also seen, you know, even in our respective commutes, you sort of see people wearing different things. And, you know, we've gone from like, can you keep them as hidden as possible to like the big bulky things to the AirPods and everything. Yeah, I think people are just simply saying, you know, I have to commute. I need the best quality. And that's part of the gig economy. Have you ever had that sort of walk-in music? Never. Yeah, there you go. Except on this radio show. There you go. Every time, which I appreciate. (laughs) (laughs) Jeffrey Cleveland is uh, back with us, Chief Economist uh, at Payton and Regal. He's based out in L.A., but here with us in New York in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Always great to see you. Thank you so much uh, for stopping by, especially because it's yeah, you're LA-esque weather uh, <laughs> outside. And, you know, you should be outside enjoying it, but you're in, in here talking with us. Uh, I tried to get a stuff class outside, but it didn't work. Um, so let's talk a little monetary policy because, you know, we're going to see some Fed minutes in a couple days. Uh, how are you feeling about the Fed specifically right now? Well, they've shifted. They pivoted dramatically since December. You can argue, and we argue amongst ourselves, whether you know it was was the right move. I think the charitable view is that the global data has been mixed. Uh, we had some weak uh, jobs report. The February jobs report mm-hmm. was weak. So you know, there's reason for the Fed to scurry to the sidelines. The uncharitable view, I think the cynical view, is that, well, the president tweeting and the, the market being down 20%, S&P down at, you know, at the holidays, that uh, the Fed got scared maybe pivoted too much. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, my, my bias right now is that the Fed, the next move for the Fed is not a cut, which is what is priced in to the bond market. The Fed funds futures market this morning was pricing a 60% chance of a rate cut. I don't see that happen. I think we're going to see in the minutes, Jason, is that they talked about concerns. They talked about inflation being muted, but they did not entertain the need to cut rates to stave off some more dire economic scenario. We'll talk about dire economic scenarios. We're getting, uh, you know, 
Europe, the European Union, I'm sure it's not being helped by Brexit, but the European Union continues to see some real weakness across its economies. We've seen that data. Uh, China slowing, still growing, but but slowing. How concerned are you about the the economies outside of the U.S. really impacting the U.S. story? Very concerned. I mean, I think this is if you're trying to come up with a case to be concerned, it shouldn't be the U.S., Looking at jobs report last week, looking at low layoffs, the initial claims. U.S. looks good. It's, it's held up well. Uh, I just got back, actually, from a tour of Europe, visiting clients in, in, in Oslo, in, in London, in Milan, Geneva, Rome. So, yeah, there is a definite dose of pessimism, I think, in the U.K., especially given the political uncertainty and on the continent. So our thinking, though, is we have seen a slowdown over the last year in Europe. Part of that was we had a really great 2017. Like we had a 2017 in Europe that was off the charts. Yeah. So it's sort of natural we slowed a little bit. So that's been, a, that's been with us, and it's particularly concentrated on manufacturing and the trade side, which I think is due in part to the global trade slowdown and to China. But the services side of Europe is, is still holding up. So this is, in our opinion, not a recession-type backdrop for, for Europe. It's, it's some temporary weakness that will, that will dissipate as the year progresses. So I, I think we're at the bottom and we're turning around in Europe right now. That's my sense. And so when you were in Europe, how much is Brexit still front of mind? How much is it affecting, if at all, how people are investing either as investors in markets or investors in their own companies? Well, in, in London, it's top of the news. I mean, yeah. it's the only thing people have been talking about really for the better part of three years. If you're talking about businesses, I mean, we have a London office, so you, you have to go through some planning in terms of, okay, what are the possible options if, if you do have a hard Brexit? So those discussions, in my mind, are weighing on business sentiment and investment activity. But again, the labor side of, of the UK looks good. Uh, jobs, job openings are at all-time high. Yeah. You're seeing uh, decades low unemployment rate. So that so that's good. In Europe, I, I got to tell you, Jason, you get more eye rolls when you bring up Brexit in right. the continent when they look back <laughs> because it's such a it's such a yep. circus, I think, to to outsiders. And the biggest thing that's changed in Europe that I detected was, I don't know, three years ago, maybe even two years ago, there probably was some, you know, idea in places like Italy. Hey, maybe we should also Exit. Right, yep, right. That, I think, has been forestalled by seeing what a uh, circus is going on in, in London. So Circus is being charitable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, so, so, Jeffrey, coming back to the U.S., you know, several weeks ago we had the yield curve invert, albeit uh, temporarily, a relatively you know, short life. And for a lot of people, that just kind of raised the, the, the bells, the arguments about recession. How concerned are you about that yield curve and what we did see? I'm a bond market nerd. I'm a bond market economist. You know, that's my background. So I, I, I like looking at the yield curve. The reason bond investors like it is because they don't want to go wait for the GDP report to come out that could be heavily revised. They want something in real time. So that's what the appeal of the yield curve, three months to 10 year being the one we look at most. But our view is, okay, the curve is not the perfect indicator. It's not the only thing you should look at. It, it operates with long lags. I mean, it could be another 18 to 24 months after you have a sustained inversion before you have the end of the business cycle. So you, you have to keep that in, in mind. We had a brief inversion. Something similar happened, if you recall, I think in the, the mid-90s, 1995. Yeah. We, we got close to inversion. 1998, we inverted or we got very close to inversion as well. And if you were sitting there at the time saying, oh, the yield curve inverted, sell everything, sell your stock, sell your credit. 
Ah, well, you would have had a rough rest of the decade. You would have had a sad 98 and 99. Exactly. That's for sure. So it's not this perfect indicator in that sense uh, that, that people want it to be. Also, I know the worst four words in economic forecasting. This time is different. Yeah. The, there are some reasons to think the curve is sending us a different signal, or at least it's, it's, it's so flat already going into this that it, the inversion could happen earlier. And so we might have another couple of years before we get to the end of this cycle. And I think investors need to pay attention to that. Well, my favorite <laughs> joke that I feel like we're hearing more and more is that uh, economists have called 15 of the last 10 recessions. Yeah. So uh, anyway, always good to catch up with you. Uh, Jeffrey Cleveland, chief economist, Peyton and Regal, based out in L.A., here with us in New York City. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Paul Sweeney. On a Monday afternoon, stocks closing up, people feeling good, sun shining. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close. Randy Watts back with us, friend of the show, executive vice president, chief investment strategist at William O'Neill and Company here in New York, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio with me and Paul Sweeney. And I just have to say, we're going to talk about the markets and we're going to drive <laughs> to the close. We're going to do all that. But all three of us are tempted to just go long on Cavalier basketball. You're a UVA guy. You're going to be up late tonight. I'm glad we're catching you today and not tomorrow because you <laughs> probably wouldn't be in great shape tomorrow. You're going to be up late watching the game. Absolutely. Wahoo wah. It's either going to be a great night or, or, or a tough <laughs> one, but they're, they're great to have gotten this far. Yeah, it's, amazing. It's, it's been a fun team to watch and certainly has not been for the faint of heart for fans, for sure. Absolutely. A lot of very close games right at the very end, overtime, the round before. Uh, obviously, everybody saw what happened on, on Saturday night. It's really been an exciting run. Yeah. And my Dukies aren't there, so I'm going to root for the ACC team Yeah, tonight. I think root for the ACC. Yeah, yeah you got it. I mean, and, you know, two first-time, um, I mean, could be either one. It's going to be the, the first championship, It's right? great for both yeah. programs. It's the first time for both of them to be there. And, I mean, this is what college sports is all about, right? Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. All right, so more down to business. I could talk about this the rest of the afternoon. But um, the other thing that is on people's minds, certainly investors' minds, is is earnings. And if Carol Masser were here, she's such an earnings head, she would say this is the time when we really get to see what's going on inside these companies. So from an investor's perspective, what are you looking for? Well, you know, it's funny. The the setup going into this earnings season is, is negative in the sense that it's going to be the first down earnings quarter year to year for the S&P since Q2 of 2016. So on the surface, that's very bad. Analysts are expecting, on average, earnings to be down about 4% this quarter. So that's a huge slowdown in earnings growth versus Q4. I think the thing we have to think about, though, is are the numbers and the expectations now so low that any kind of positive surprise would be met very well by the market? And I think that really the hurdle rate is now down so, so low that there's a good chance, actually, we could have a positive earnings season in terms of surprises. 
How concerned are you about an earnings recession where we have two quarters in a row of, of down year-over-year earnings? Is that something that you think is discounted in the market right now? Uh, I think it, it is a risk. The way the earnings progression goes for the year right now in terms of consensus numbers is minus four for Q1, flat basically for Q2, up 2% for Q3, and up 8% in Q4. Wow. So yes, I think, in, I, think the earnings, I think earnings season is really going to give a lot of direction to the market this time around, maybe even more than normal. If, if companies come out on their conference calls when they release the first quarter numbers and say, hey, you know, Q2 is not going to be as bad as everyone thinks, then I think that could give a little more fuel to this, what's obviously been a very strong rally. Likewise, if they come out and say, actually, you know, the economy is weakening and we see Q2 worse than people expect, that could cause the trigger for a pullback. We haven't had any substantial pullback since we had that low on December 24th. And when you think about sectors right now that are especially vulnerable or especially strong, where do you go? I think one thing that's interesting is in the last week or so, you know, some of the commodity sectors have started to move basic materials and energy. You know, oil's back above $64. That's a huge move. And that could really lead to better earnings later in the year than what everyone expected. I think most analyst models have oil, you know, in the 50s for the year. So if oil stays up here, that could really provide a lot of positive earnings momentum for that space. How about the banks? We're going to hear from some of the big banks starting next week. And what I remember from last quarter was just a terrible quarter for capital markets uh, activity for the big banks. Yet they said 2019 is going to be better. And that's all it really took for the stocks. What are you expecting out of the, some of the big banks? So, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a great question. Obviously, it starts this week. J.P. Morgan and Wells, I believe, are on Friday. So that really sort yeah. of kicks off the big cap earnings. Uh, I, obviously, you know, Q1's not going to be, I think, a great quarter for the banks. The, the yield curve has flattened. That's put a lot of pressure on their net interest margins. Tough for banks to make money when the difference between the short end and the long end is so tight. Uh, and I don't think people have huge expectations for Q2. So I think, I think investors are going to pretty much give the banks a pass on this on the quarter that just ended. It's really going to be about the forward guidance and what they say about loan demand and the economy. All right. So yield curve, you mentioned it. Much, much, much was made by us here at Bloomberg, probably as much as, much as anywhere else, uh, about that inversion. Too much, too little attention paid to, to that as a harbinger for investors. I think it does matter. The San Francisco Fed wrote a paper about a year ago highlighting the importance of the three months to the 10-year and how it's been a good predictor of economic slowdown. That inversion, which is, it's not inverted right now, but it was inverted, you know, a week or two ago. That inversion normally signals an economic slowdown. We're, we're having a bit of a slowdown. I think the question is, you know, really what happens from here? The yield curve inverting doesn't have to guarantee a recession. It does usually, though, necessitate an economic slowdown. The question investors are dealing with right now is all this global central bank easing is that going to show up later in the year in the form of better economic growth in the third or really the fourth quarter? And if that does happen, then that means you should actually be buying stocks now. You know, I was looking at the Bloomberg terminal and I've uh, seen that NASDAQ is up almost 20% year to date, uh, better than the S&P 500. How have you viewed kind of tech investing in general, maybe the FANG stocks, is because they just lead the market up, they lead it down, and they're leading it up again this year. How do you view the tech sector? I think, I think uh, two points. The first is that when the rally started, it was, I think, really liquidity-driven by all these central bank easings. You had, you had easings basically from the Bank of Japan, the ECB, uh, the, the Bank of China, and, that, and, and now the Fed kind of walking back, they're tightening. And that liquidity sort of flowed into, really flowed into all assets, right? Metals went up. Oil went up, bonds went up, and stocks went up. That's a very unusual uh, occurrence. 
I think the reason money first went into tech is people were nervous about the economy, so they went where the growth is. And I think for this market to continue higher, what we're really going to need to, to see is a little bit better economy and some of these more cyclical stocks starting to, to, take, to take the lead. Single biggest worry in the market right now for you? I, it's really just the, the global macro. You know, is the slowdown that's been occurring in places like Europe and in China going to really hurt U.S. companies? Like, you know, in the S&P, those companies get about 40% of their sales overseas. So is that going to drag down the U.S. economy? And then the second is, can all of these easings result in a, in a pickup in growth late in the year? All right. Randy Watts, Executive Vice President and Chief Investment Strategist for William O'Neill & Company here in New York, devoted University of Virginia alum. No, you'll be rooting for the Wahoos, the Cavaliers, Wahoo Wah, and all that good stuff. Let's go, Cavs. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.